So the last two weeks, or last week and this week, we are looking at John's introduction, often called John's prologue, one of the truly majestic, profound, sublime passages in all of Scripture. Last week we looked at the first five verses of the 18-verse prologue, and this week we're going to look at the last five verses. But I'm going to read last week's passage and today's. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. When John says in verse 14, the Word made flesh, he had introduced that title only used by John back in verse 1 when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's how he refers to Jesus in the prologue. And for a very simple reason, that is because our words reveal our thoughts, our heart, and Jesus reveals who God is. So he begins by calling him the Word, and notice that the passage I just read, the very last phrase, makes the same point that Jesus reveals who God is. At the end of verse 18, he has made him known. So this idea of Jesus reveals who God is, is really laced from first to the end. Now, he's talking about this unseen, invisible creator, God, who's the source of all life and light in the universe. And then in verse 14, he pivots in the passage and says, and the word became flesh. Now, he doesn't say merely the Word became a baby, which is true, or the Word became human, but he says the Word became flesh, this more graphic, almost crude term. The unseen, invisible, immortal, infinite God who has no body takes on human flesh. Something like you becoming an earthworm. Now, for most of creation, all except the angels, we'd say that if if, if that thing became a human, that'd be a step up. But not with God becoming human. That's on the order of you and me becoming uh, an earthworm or a banana slug or something like that. The profound humility for God to become one of us. And the Word became flesh. The theological term often used is incarnation. 
from some, from some Latin terms, and basically it means enfleshment, uh, emphasizing that this is a human flesh. It's a real thing, not a resembling a human, but, 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 but actually flesh and blood. When I was a freshman in college, I was a, a new Christian, and an older Christian wisely gave me a book that was just published called Knowing God. Now, in the 44 years since then, that has become a modern-day Christian classic. I've read that book more than any other Christian book, more than any book, period. It's in our bookstore if you've never read it. And in that book, the, the writer, J.I. Packer, put, says, uh, refers to the incarnation this way. He says, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. And I agree with him that there's nothing that you read in novels or fantasy literature as, as incredible as this. Now, his fellow Brit, C.S. Lewis, puts it in a more homely way when he says, lying at your feet is your dog. Just imagine with me. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much. If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like men, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, hobbies, your art and literature and music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into the beloved's face and wagging your tail, unable to speak or smile? Now, it's something like that. And he concludes, Christ by becoming man limited the thing which to him was the most precious thing in the world, his unhampered, unhindered communion with the Father. The Word became flesh. And, and it goes on to say, and he dwelt among us. Now, every word in the New Testament does not have particular interest, but some do, and this one does. The Word became flesh is a, a term used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for the word tabernacle. Now, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and um, in the early centuries, about the time of Christ, Greek became the common language of the day, the lingua franca of the day, not unlike that English is kind of a common language lingua franca of our day. And so, uh, they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so so many more people could read it. And when it came to this word, he chose a word from the Old Testament that was used as the verb form of he tabernacled. So a, a, a reader in that day would, say, would read, the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. And no question, he was making the point of the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was then replaced by the temple in the Old Testament that was considered the place on the planet where the presence of God was focused. I mean, if there's any place on the planet where God was there, it was the tabernacle, then replaced by the permanent temple. And he is saying, Jesus 
When he came to the planet, he replaced the tabernacle. He replaced the temple because the presence of God is in Jesus. He tabernacled among us. And then, of course, uh, years later when he ascends to the Father, goes back to the Father, uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And the New Testament says, we are now the temple of God. Because the, the, the presence of God is now focused in His people. So each one of us who has trusted Christ, we are the temple of God. There's no building that's sacred in the planet, including this one. You are the sacred indweller and host of God. And all of us together as a church, we are the temple of God. So Jesus became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Now this is eyewitness stuff. John was with Him. He saw Him. He ate with Him. He prayed with Him. He slept, you know, in the campfire with Him. We've seen His glory. Eyewitness, not secondhand stuff. Now this would be decades after Jesus left. We know that John's gospel is the last one written. Probably John is, uh, you know, 80 years old or so by now. And can you imagine John, the aging apostle John, called by God to write this account that has so much in it that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. And and he's inspired by the Spirit. He's writing, penning this first part. And he says, um, you know, he dwelt among us and we beheld his, his, uh, his glory. That's it. That's what we saw in Jesus. We saw the glory of God. We saw, we saw the beauty, the splendor, the radiance of God. And, and you and I, through the pages of the New Testament, we see the glory of God in Jesus, do we not? I mean, think with me about this. Think about Mark 1 where Jesus approaches a leper who says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus not only heals him, but before he heals him, he does something he never does else in the the New Testament. He reaches out and touches him. The man who no one would touch, but they would shun as dirty and unclean. But Jesus did. And he said, I am willing. Be clean. Or you see Jesus in Luke 7. He runs upon a funeral processional. And it turns out that the a funeral is of a widow, so she's already lost her husband, and she only had one son, and he died, a son. And he goes up to her, and it just is overwhelmed with compassion for this widow who has now lost her son, and he raises him from the dead in his love. You know, when you look at Jesus, you see nothing but tender compassion. And most of all, you see that compassion and love when he's hanging on a cross paying for your sin because of his love for you. You see the love of God. You see, the, you see Jesus in his glory. But you not only see his love, you see his power, his greatness. You know, sometimes I've had the opportunity to go to Israel uh, to, to lead a tour. And a highlight for me is to be on the Sea of Galilee. Because when I'm out there in the Sea of Galilee, I look down and, you know, there's deep water there. And just imagine, I think about Jesus walked on that water. Because he had all power. He could do whatever he wanted to. And, and, and moreover, when the fierce storm raged on the water and so much that the fishermen were scared to death, Jesus said, be still. And not only did the wind stop, but the, 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 the waves just calmed down. 
He had all power. He could feed the 5,000. He could banish the demons. He could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. There is nothing he could not do. He had all power. The glory of God in the face of Jesus. Or I think about the, the humility of Jesus. I mean, when you consider some of the things that Jesus claimed, just off the charts things like, you know, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Or he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, the, to, to God but through me. Or he says things like this, uh, uh, you know, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be able to judge all men living in it. He made outrageous claims. But he could also say without blinking, without any sense of self-consciousness, I am gentle and humble in heart, and no one blinks an eye because of his profound humility. He just, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He, he was fearless, speaking to religious leaders who could have him killed and did do that, said the truth without any fear or hesitation. He spoke to people. He was, he was completely honest and truthful. He had grace, unbelievable. You know, for example, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and folks like that were completely ostracized by Jewish society. No one had anything to do with them, but they hung around Jesus because they felt his acceptance, his grace, and his love. When they brought to him a woman caught in adultery in the very act, and you can imagine she was publicly humiliated, covered with shame. And what did Jesus do? He brilliantly exposed their sin, not her sin, by saying, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. They all left. And then he says, did no one condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Grace, grace. You know, in the face of Jesus, you see the glory of God like none other. You see the radiance, the beauty of God. You know, I think of the passage that we were in in the early spring in the book of Exodus. And kind of a climactic passage in the book of Exodus comes in Exodus 34, when Moses is having this incredible conversation with God right after the golden calf incident. And at one point in Exodus 34, 6, Moses just kind of abruptly says, show me your glory. And you think, well, boy, haven't you seen his glory? I mean, you just walked through the Red Sea, parted completely, and seen so many things. But Moses, I want to see you and your glory. Well, God could only do this for Moses because he couldn't handle the full glory of God. He kind of hit him in a cave, saw the back, uh, a glimpse of his glory, and it was overwhelming. But 1,400 years later, God himself steps out of heaven into, onto earth, and he reveals his glory. In Jesus, you see the glory of God, the beauty, the radiance, the splendor, like nowhere else, the glory of God. Now he says, we saw his, we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now the King James traditionally translates this in the famous, the only begotten of the Father, which essentially means unique or only he was the Son of God and is the Son of God in a way that no one else is. He's the eternal Son of God. He did not become the Son when He came to the planet as a human. He had an eternal sonship relationship with the Father, which, which speaks of the tender love and intimacy within the persons of the Godhead from all eternity. He's the only Son from the Father, and He's full of grace and truth. Full. 
completely full of grace, completely full of truth. By the way, uh, that little phrase uh, is so helpful to me when I think about human relationships. Because human relationships are difficult at times, especially if you, you engage in conflict, because this is exactly what should be our guideline. We should be full of grace and full of truth. And that's the way Jesus was. He was full of kindness, love, and mercy, infinitely so. And he was full of truth, justice, and holiness, infinitely so. He he did not compromise his truth to extend grace, and he did not compromise his grace to extend truth. He's full of grace and truth. That's our Savior. That's Jesus. Now, at this point, John has a little, uh, John the Apostle has a little parenthesis about John the Baptist. And by the way, he did in that first section also, 1 through 14, we did, 1 through 13, we didn't get to, but there's a section about Jesus, a little parenthesis on John the Baptist, and goes back to Jesus, just like this movement does too. There's all kind of symmetry and patterns in this beautiful introduction. But John, he records saying that this was the one of whom I said, he who comes after me, because he was the younger cousin, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He was preexistent, eternal before me. That's who he was. And then back to the passage, he picks up on the last statement we read. He's full of grace and truth. And he says then in verse 16, and out of his fullness and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So Jesus is full of grace, full of truth. And from his fullness, we have all received, you and me, all of us have received grace upon grace, one gift of love, kindness, and mercy after another. Kind of like you're standing on the beach. I could say it, Gulf of Mexico, but that's not pretty enough. You know, the, the, on the West Coast or the East Coast or something like that, you're standing on the beach, and wave upon wave just keeps coming, just keeps coming. And that's the grace of God in your life since the day you were born and for all eternity. The next breath that you breathe, breath upon breath. Every time you sin, big or little, grace upon grace, forgiveness upon forgiveness. You need provision, guidance, wisdom, love, grace upon grace. That's what Jesus gives you, grace upon grace, full of grace. And then he compares and kind of focuses on the contrast with Moses in verse 17 when he says, for, now you you receive grace upon grace from Jesus, for, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if there's a dominant figure in the Old Testament, it would probably be Moses. He is the man that God chose not only to lead his people out of Israel, but to give the law to the people, the the, the Mosaic law that shows people the holiness of God and how far short of the holiness of God we fall. So the sinfulness of man and the law, the rule-keeping of the Old Testament. That's what you get with the Old Testament with Moses, but with the New Testament of Jesus, you get grace and truth. One man put it this way. He said, if the world could have been saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. But we're not saved by bookkeeping, are we? We're not saved by religion, performance, churchianity, good boys and bad boys, none of that. We're saved by the grace of God. Just grace. Full of grace. Grace on tap. We're, we're not uh, bookkeepers as followers of Jesus. We are those folks who have recognized our sin and reached out like a beggar receiving a free gift and say thank you. 
We, we, we like those guys that go in and turn the knobs and, and, and there's grace on tap as much as we need. No end of the grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then the final verse, some ways a climactic verse, in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one has ever seen God. Now, now in, in the Old Testament, weren't there times where people saw God? I mean, Genesis 2 and 3, didn't God walk with Adam in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve, Luke's Adam and Eve. Didn't um, Moses talk with God in Exodus 34 that I mentioned earlier and see him? What about Isaiah 6 where God uh, is in his temple and Isaiah has this vision of God? Other places. Well, for all of those things, you do, uh, we see what we see there is a temporary appearing of God. What could be called a theophany, kind of like the English word epiphany and appearance. Not the essence of who God is, but a temporary appearing of God in some sort of human-like fashion. Then it goes back to, to being the unseen, invisible God. But with Jesus, he steps on the planet, takes human flesh, and forever and ever after, Jesus has is, is got human flesh in heaven today. Fully God, fully human. Not a, a theophany or a Christophany, not an appearance, but the real thing. We see him with our eyes. Now, verse 18 has these three interesting points that exactly replicate three points of verse 1, kind of forming a um, conclusion, a loop, uh, a brackets around the, 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 the prologue. No one has ever seen God, and then here it is, the only God, so he calls him God here. Now, in verse 15, he called him, or 16, 14, he had called him the only son from the father, because he's not the father, he's the son. But here he calls him the only God who is at the father's side. He's not God or the same. He is God, but he's distinct from God, unity and plurality. And the same two points are made in the first verse. Then the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's God, and yet he's with God. Same as verse 18, he is God, the only God who is at the Father's side. And then verse 18, the, you know, the, kind of the, the final point, he has made God known. He reveals to us who God is, and that is exactly the point of that threefold title in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, because he is the one who reveals God and makes him known. He reveals what God is like, and we need that. We need that. I need that. Now, it seems to me after 30, 35 years of being a pastor that a lot of Christians, God bless them, don't really struggle with the hard questions. And, you know, if you're in that case, it's a gift of God. Just enjoy it. But about 10% of us or so far, we wrestle from time to time with some hard questions and, you know, why does God allow this? And why does God allow that? You know, besides the fact that babies get cancer and that 25,000 people die every day of starvation and that there are earthquakes and hurricanes that wipe out thousands, the hardest question of all 
has got to be the reality of hell. I mean, okay, let me process this. Forever and ever and ever, apart from God, oh, that's just almost too much for the human brain. But because we believe in the Bible, we don't go to the unbiblical alternative of saying, well, somehow they all get saved. But we believe the Bible and we submit to it. And we just say, well, I just trust that God is God and we bow before Him. But this is what I do specifically. I think about Jesus. And I think about some of the events in His life. And I think, He was so good. If I care about these folks Jesus cares about them a million times more. And and if I know a little bit about things like this, Jesus knows a million times more. So, Jeff, get off your high horse and don't think you can fully understand God. Humble yourself before an infinite God and look at the face of Jesus that He is good and He cares more than you do and trust Him. Sometimes at the questions of life, we need to, to look straight into the face of Jesus and take courage. Oh, yes, that's what God is like, and I can trust Him. I don't understand Him, but I can trust Him. And so many other things are like that. Maybe there are times in which you fail miserably. I mean, you just covered over with guilt and sin, and you just wonder, can God in heaven really forgive you? And you think of Jesus hanging on a cross paying for your sins, saying, it is finished. You look at Jesus, and you know, yes, God can forgive my sin. Or other times, you're kind of on the other side. You, you know the great grace of God, and so you maybe you're a little bit casual about sin. You, you can kind of sin here and, and there, and not, not that big a deal to God. And then you look at Jesus and see how he abhorred the sin that would cost him his blood. And no one talked about the judgment of God against sin as much as Jesus did, or the reality of hell as much as Jesus did. And you say, Oh, God does hate sin, and I better hate it too. Or you think about other times when um, you feel, man, God, is God even hearing my prayers? You know, if you're like me, at times you pray and pray and pray about something, and it just seems like God doesn't hear. And what do you do? Well, this is what I do. I could go to any place in the Bible, but I go to the New Testament to Jesus, and I think about John 14, where Jesus, in a section of about four or five verses, repeatedly emphasizes, ask. Ask your Father, and He will hear you. Ask your Father. And then I think about Matthew 7, 7 and 8 in the Sermon on the Mount, where about six times in two verses, He says, ask, ask, ask. And I think to myself, Jesus is not a complete fraud lying to me. Oh, no. I may not understand all about prayer, but Jesus repeatedly tells me to pray, and yes, God hears my prayers. Friends, what I'm saying is that in every part of the spiritual life, in every part of life, when we have questions about what God is like, look at Jesus who was full of the glory of God. Jesus reveals what God is like, and we see His glory. And do you know where we primarily see, more than any other place, the glory of God? Not, not at Christmas, not even at Easter. 
the resurrection. Not at his miracles, walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, none of those. But the place, above all places, where you see the glory of God is on the cross where Jesus Christ voluntarily pays for sin to satisfy the justice of God. And he pays for sin because he's crazy in love with you and me. And there above all, we see the glory of God. It's the cross, the cross, the cross. And well might we celebrate communion week after week after week and come to the communion table and be reminded afresh the love, the grace, the justice, the mercy of Jesus for me. And we worship. We worship. I think the high point in many ways is that Jesus is the Word who reveals the Father. He has made Him known. That if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Now, how can we do that more and more, better and better? Well, i got three quick suggestions. One, do what Moses did. When Moses asked, God, show me your glory. Do you pray that prayer? I've encouraged you to pray that prayer. I pray that prayer or one like it every day. I pray it for you. Lord, show us your glory because we need to see the glory of God. So I, I would ask what Moses asked. Show me your glory. The second one is, uh, this is a obvious one is that we need to saturate ourselves in the Word of God because there it is we see God and what He's like, especially in the person of Jesus. So every day, I mean, we, we open this book, which is a greater treasure than all the gold in the world, and we meet with God and draw close. Those are two obvious ones. I've got a third one that's not obvious. But I experienced it as a young man struggling with my view of God, whether or not God really loves me, whether or not God was really good. And this is what happened. This is what I noticed, that over the years, as I connected to God in worship, God was using that worship to transform my vision of who He is. And there's something powerful about worship. I think that's why God so emphasizes it throughout the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that this happens if you are with a group of people and you're singing songs. Nothing happens. But if you connect with God, just in a few moments, Kyla's going to come up here and the band's going to be up here, and they're going to lead us in a song. And if you connect with God, that is, if you express to Him your love, adoration, and praise, something magical is going to happen in your soul. And particularly when you are with God's people, and God pours out His presence, and you show up week by week, not month by month, week by week, and encounter God in worship, God will transform your soul and your vision of who He is. Come and worship, and you see the glory of God. Jesus reveals God to us. If you'd stand with me, I'm going to pray. But let me say something to... uh, Maybe you're here and you're not sure where you stand with God. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you felt like, well, my parents were Christians. That kind of makes me a Christian. Or, you know, I kind of grew up in a church. Or, you know, I'm an American, or not? And you think that gets you to get It doesn't. It's when you put your trust in a Savior. Lord, I need you to save me. Now, for some of you here, um, you're, you've rejected Christ because uh, you've got these intellectual questions. And you're thinking to yourself, if I get my questions answered sufficiently, then I'll become a Christian. Well, let me just tell you what the Bible says. 
about that. The Bible says that all of us know that there is a God in heaven. He just put it in us. We see it. There is no true atheist. There are some pretend atheists, but there's no true atheist. We all know that God exists. We all know it's the truth of God. And the reason that we reject Christ is not because of the insufficiency of evidence, but it's because of this, despite the sufficiency of the evidence. Because we don't want to bow the knee to God and submit to Him. That's the problem. And if you are rejecting Christ because of your proud self-will, I beg you, I beg you, give that up. And in humility, humble yourself and say, oh, God, save me. I need a Savior. You can do that right now. Pray with me. Lord God, if there's anyone here who has not trusted you as Savior, may they breathe a prayer now. May they lay aside all intellectual pride or every form of pride and just say yes to you. I need a Savior. Lord, for my fellow brothers and sisters, here at Wood's Edge and our guests, Lord, may we see the glory of God in Jesus. And may, we, and may we fall more and more in love with Him. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.